today's podcast, Jimmy Butler. What's the deal, man? I'm going to give you the full timeline of Jimmy Butler's career, try to make sense of his fourth stop. Also, Kevin O'Connor has a mock draft out. It's up on the ringer. We're going to go over all the lottery picks. And a special guest from the documentary Free Solo and some new work that's out there, mountain climber Alex Honnold on that documentary that changed his life, the sport, and some other stuff as well. So fired up about that and life advice. It's the Ryan Russillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA final starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older. 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler or visit rg help.com. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday. I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side by side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Let's talk about your number one seed, Miami Heat. Why not, right? Because we saw the turmoil on the bench. Uh, we'll run through this. Originally, I was going to do kind of an East breakdown because it actually gets pretty interesting when you start looking at some of the East records and how they do against the West. And even though we feel like the East is better, and it is better, um, there's stuff that I'll just use next week. I think I'll do it next week because as I was going through it, I was like, wait. Do we really know what's going to happen? And by the way, we don't. All right. But the Heat are your one seed. And every time you look at the standings, you're like, yep, they're still a one seed. And it's a team that defends like crazy, that I really like, that have missed big time chunks of the season from their three best players. And we have to take them seriously. But then I'm like, wait, if I like Miami's defense so much, then why wouldn't I just go ahead and pick Boston? Um, and we can do the Boston thing when we get into the East as well, as they just are stomping teams uh, and just put it on Utah like that, too. And I still think Utah's a decent team. But really, last night, in the NBA world and what this Open is about today is Jimmy Butler. So in the third quarter, Golden State goes on a 19-0 run. Miami has a timeout. Brian Windhorst said there was a specific closeout that Butler didn't get to. I mean, shocker, we're in March, late March, and a vet didn't get out on the closeout. And Spo and Butler get into it. Now you can see whatever happened where Butler's back is to us to the video footage that we saw from a fan. Uh, and apparently the Miami Heat broadcast ignored all of this. Shocker. So as we see Spo. And Butler going back and forth. At one point, whatever Butler says, Spo, you can read his lips, says back to him, he's like, you want me to fucking fight you? <laughs> Kyle Lowry's like, I'm out. PJ Tucker makes a face where he's kind of like, what just happened? And then he's kind of back to whatever he's doing. But Udonis Haslam, who's been there for two decades, is not having it and gets into it with Butler. He's like, I'll beat your ass. I'll beat your ass. All right. And Butler didn't seem to want a ton of that. 
Um, despite I think we'd all agree Butler's a tough guy too. But then we get a different angle from above where it just keeps going. And this is the part that's a little weird. All right. It's it's weird in that there seemed to be one player that was kind of holding Butler back, but it felt like the rest of the team was cool with Spo going at Butler. And then he slammed his clipboard down and kept going. And then I thought the best part of it was is that Butler and Spo, even the times where it looked like Spo was was kind of like, do you really want some of this? <laughs> Which is not usually the best look for your team, but in the moment, as I say all the time, we're not always the best at trying to figure out what it actually means because it could mean everything. It could mean nothing. Um, I, I don't I don't know what it means at this point, but I thought it was kind of crazy that it kept going and it didn't seem like any of the teammates really cared. It felt like they had Spolster's side and then they kind of came to a head at the end where they were very close to each other and they were animated and kind of talking out the whole point. All right. So, did the heat culture die last night? Uh, not if you ask heat culturists, because this is only going to make them stronger, right? Um, cracks in the foundation? Probably not. Like I said, I think a lot of this stuff happens. But last night was aggressive. So, it comes down to two camps. If you're a heat fan, awesome. This is great. This is exactly how we're built. Built different. Uh, if you want the heat to lose and you think they're overrated, then you think this is part of the end. And we don't have that answer right now. But really, this becomes a Jimmy Butler story and the Jimmy Butler timeline. So, let's revisit because it is a long one. And it is, I, I, to be nice, I edited this to try to like, hey, I'm not going to bring up every single time Jimmy Butler got mad at somebody because you know what? As I was digging through it this morning, it's a very long list. But Jimmy Butler should be appreciated. Yes, I did like him coming out of the draft. He scored 2.6 points per game in 42 games his rookie year. He played eight minutes per game. All right. As a 22-year-old rookie, Jimmy Butler's playing eight minutes a game. His second year, he starts 20 at 82 games, scores eight and a half points per game. In his third year, he finally, we're like, wait, okay, there's something here, 13 points per game. There's an argument to be made that he should have been played earlier. Um, this is not a guy that was 18 coming in. He was 22. I've also said numerous times, I think the NBA evaluation thing is a little bit different in that we've had more developmental stars where players who look like complete pro projects have no idea turn into some of the game's best players. And that's usually not the way that this happens, which adds another wrinkle to it. So as Butler's coming into his own in that third season, uh, Derek Rose comes back during Butler's fourth season. Rose to this point had played 39 games in 11 and 12. He missed all of 12-13, played 10 games in 13-14. So Butler's fourth year is the first season in about three years where Rose is actually giving you some, some decent numbers. And if you watch those Bulls games, you could see that Rose is like, look, it's my city. It's my team. Sorry I've missed almost three years, but I'd like my team back. And Butler's like, yeah, I'm actually good now. And Butler, after those first three years in his fourth, fifth, and sixth season, made three straight all-star teams with the Bulls. And Butler's gonna, like, no, it's kind of my team. And by the way, Butler was right. He was better than Derrick Rose at that point. If you watch that team play on offense, it was awful because they would just basically go back and forth taking turns of whose team it was. You couldn't play basketball that way. And at that point, I had sided with Butler. I also had information that I shared on ESPN years ago and that one of the other reasons Butler was always so mad, and again, I would say he came into the league mad and then had more reasons to be mad, and justifiably so, is that Chicago, when they were making him contract offers, they were kind of fucking with him a little bit, being like, look, if you don't take this, like you're still not, it's still not really your team. We're not quite sure what your numbers are going to be, almost implying that he may not get all the minutes that he needs to to get the numbers for a contract that he thought he was deserving of. I believe that's true. I double-checked it. I had somebody who ran into Jimmy Butler later on saying, hey, did you hear what that ESPN guy said about the contract thing? Butler said, yeah, he's absolutely right. I'm sure no one from Chicago would agree. As far as front office side of it, none of those guys are there anymore. It doesn't matter. But it made sense, and I got it from somebody who was very reliable and double-checked it. 
So when I was hearing all that stuff, I'm like, look, the basketball part of it tells me that Butler's right. And the history tells me that Butler's right to be upset. So Rose gets traded after 15-16. Butler's got the Bulls do himself in 16-17. And then that starts going off the rails because Butler, remember we had that post about like how much his teammates sucked? Or excuse me, he started complaining about his teammates a ton. He started crushing Hoiberg all the time. Um, and he might have been right about Hoiberg. But then there was another weird element to it, too, where Dwayne Wade agreed with Butler. Then Rajon Rondo, of all people, posted something on Instagram essentially saying that the big three, the vets of the Celtics run of his earlier part of his career would have never done this to the younger guys. So then you're like, well, I don't know who to believe here at this whole point. So guess what? Butler gets his way. He's pissed off at the world. He gets traded to Minnesota while he's still under contract. But that's important because he wanted a new contract from Minnesota. So he's with the Timberwolves in 1718. There's all sorts of stuff that you can go look it up. I'm not going to recite all of it here. There's a weird plane incident. There's another thing where his teammates aren't good enough. Um, he didn't want to play. He missed a bunch of time towards the end of the regular season. There's a game where he didn't want to go back in, apparently. I don't remember all of it. I was looking it all up. They lost to the Rockets in five games in the first round. His numbers are bad, but to be fair to Butler, he had missed a huge chunk at the end of the regular season with this knee thing, so he wasn't entirely healthy either. But then he doesn't do his exit interview. He demands a trade because he's mad about the contract offer. There was another part where apparently Butler was mad the team didn't restructure other things or get rid of other people so that they'd have more money to pay him, which I don't think is going to go over really well in the locker room. And then when Butler doesn't get his trade over the course of that offseason, he comes back to Minnesota. And then we have the infamous practice where Butler coordinates it all because the jump happens to be in town where he does the sit down with Rachel Nichols, which I've talked about all the time. And by the way, I was never criticizing the jump about it. Good for you. It's a great get. If anybody said to you, hey, Ryan Rosillo, NBA star, fill in the blank, is really pissed off and wants to do an interview with you, you do it every single time. But from Butler's side of it, totally coordinated. He plays apparently with the third stringers against Wiggins and Towns and just berates them the entire scrimmage, apparently wins it. Woj has a tweet on it where he's like, you fucking need me. All right. And he's calling out Wiggins in town, who at that point, I don't think anybody's going to go back retroactively and say Jimmy Butler was wrong about the passion of two younger players that were supremely talented, but hadn't quite figured it out yet. And yes, the Timberwolves needed him, but he didn't get the contract that he wanted. And they were like, OK, this is untenable. And at that point, I think ownership steps in. They trade Jimmy Butler to Philadelphia. Now, in Philadelphia, he's got kind of the same problem, just a different geographic spot in the country where he's with Philadelphia, a better team, clearly, and a nice little you know playoff round there against Toronto. Could have gone the other way. Who knows? But Butler explained this in the J.J. Redick podcast on his exit from Philadelphia, a bunch of different things where he was mad about his teammates and their effort. He was mad about the trainers. He was mad about the lack of leadership. He said there was no direction, which, by the way, all of us, I think, could have any single job and start finding ways to get pissed about the structure above us, because I think that's kind of how we're all built. But Butler is now starting to develop a trend where it seems like everywhere you go, you are upset about the level of effort, not meeting your level of effort. Um, you can be right about that, but there's also a way of handling it. And if you're doing it every single time, every single place you go, it can start to become a you problem. And I think that's where it started with Butler. Butler makes a really good point about the playoffs where he felt like all of a sudden Brett Brown, which I don't think he had a ton of respect for, um, which he basically admits numerous times, either hinting at it. And then I think after the fact being like, it was professional. Well, if it was, you're saying it was professional, it means you don't really like the guy. Um, where he was mad that Ben Simmons, big-time playoff Ben Simmons, all of a sudden was not the on-ball creator that he had been during the regular season. A lot of those bigger decisions were left to Jimmy Butler. And that part, I would side with Jimmy Butler. Because as I had heard after the fact, he just kind of felt like, I have to be the grown-up here of Philadelphia. These guys can't kind of carry themselves. They've been losing all the time. 
and now I'm here to save the day, but it's kind of their team and it's built around them. Fuck this. I'm out. Sign and trade Miami Heat. And if you looked at just the Philadelphia thing, if you just looked at the Minnesota thing and just looked at the Chicago thing, I think at that point you'd be like, you know what? I think I might agree with Jimmy Butler in a bunch of these different, different positions that he has. So he gets to Miami, he gets his money, he gets his team. And they go on this incredible run. And we can diminish it if we want because of the bubble part of it. I don't think the Miami Heat team that got to the finals is a great team. It wasn't. It wasn't a great team. But it was a really nice run. And they get to the finals. They can't. They don't have the size. They're not going to be Anthony Davis and LeBron. All right. Butler, and I would never tell any player like, hey, you shouldn't think you're this good. But he has flirted with that top 10 neighborhood despite never really being that guy. I think he's really good. I just don't think he's ever been that guy. And when you're not that guy and you're always pissed and there always seems to be a bad breakup, you can be right about a lot of things, but it doesn't mean that you're always right about everything. And I think to this point, Butler's always thought he's right about every single deal. I can understand the Chicago part, Minnesota, Philadelphia, we've been through it. The Spo part is going to be challenging for me. Now, Spo handled it like a magician after the fact. We were arguing about where we were going to go to dinner. I watched his post-game presser. Spo gets it. He's been around forever. He's one of the best coaches. So if you're talking about the best coaches in the NBA, the conversation includes Eric Spolster. I, I can't say definitively one is better than everybody else. I'd have to have somebody smarter at basketball than me to explain specifically why this one guy is head and shoulders about everyone else. But the conversation, if it's two, three, five guys, it can't happen without Eric Spolstra. Eric Spolstra is not Andrew Wiggins, not knowing who he is. Andrew Wiggins' brother tweeting out hallelujah when Butler demanded a trade in Minnesota. Butler being like, are you fucking serious, dude? Are you serious? You're fucking with me? Again, I think I take Butler's side in that one. Um, Eric Spolster is not Ben Simmons in a playoff spot being like, eh, I'm not super comfortable creating plays here. Okay. Uh, Eric Spolster is not Derrick Rose trying to reclaim his team in city when he's not the same player. Eric Spolster is a guy that's won championships. has been a steady force for a franchise that's reinvented itself a bunch of different times. So on this one, even though it may not mean a ton, it's a hard one to then say this pattern of behavior is the same. There's a great Kobe Bryant quote. Phil Jackson had in one of his books. I've mentioned it before, but it's incredible. Kobe was always pissed at his teammates all the time. He was pissed at them all the time because Kobe's level of effort, his investment in the game was beyond all of his teammates. And Phil said to him, he goes, whatever your, your, your 10 is, that's unobtainable for all these other guys. Like their 10 is your six or seven, but they don't know that there's another, like it's incomprehensible to them that there's this next level. It's never going to happen. So the sooner you accept that, the happier that you're going to be. And it's a very smart quote. It's, 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 it's enlightening to make sense. It's like, stop asking somebody to reach this level that they are incapable of. And that's why this makes you so special. The problem is Jimmy Butler's not Kobe Bryant. The problem is that he's carrying himself this way and he's demanding this from his teammates. And he's always pissed, even if he's right to be pissed. You can't be pissed off at the world all the time, even if you're right. And the fucked up part about this is the Heat, as I said at the very top, the number one seed. If they're playing a full strength Brooklyn in a 1 8 matchup, who are you taking? So if they lose that, it's not going to be because of this. But if Butler starts his exit again, or if this all starts to happen again, it has been the story for him every single chapter of his NBA career. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. You know what I hate, hate, is after lunch, there's all this time before dinner. I hate it. So I'm always like, do I do this? It's like, you should. Gain season. Throw in a little 
something extra, an appetizer that just starts hours before dinner. It just gets so frustrating when there aren't great options. That's where Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps come in. Available in your choice of ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for that afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Food buddies. Arby's two for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. Kevin O'Connor has a mock draft. It is out today. Check it out on TheRinger.com. Okay, you went uh, according to the standings here as well. So you have Holmgren going number one overall to Houston. How much of this is Chet? How much of it is Houston? It's a little bit of both. I mean, with Chet, he's clearly a, a top three prospect. And also for Houston, though, fit-wise, uh, adding a, a rim-protecting presence like Holmgren, who can playmake a little bit, space the floor, makes him a perfect fit with Jalen Green, uh, their young star who's been absolutely terrific since early February. And then with Alperen Shengun, he's played quite a bit with Christian Wood, who doesn't bring it defensively in terms of his intensity and effort all the time. Holmgren, it's never going to be a question with that. So I, I think for Houston, getting Chet Holmgren could give them a real, you know, great foundation, maybe one of the best young foundations in basketball if they were to get to those two guys paired together, especially with Shengun and the other youth they have. Where are you on Chet with everything? Give me your overall Chet thing. I, th I think with Chet, uh, he is probably a safer prospect than I think people talk about him as. Like, I think the concern with Chet with somebody who's seven foot one, 195 pounds with his weird, skinny, lanky body, you do worry about injuries. That's the concern in terms of what his floor would be. But I'm curious what you think, Ryan. Like, I watch this guy play. I see the toughness. I see the skill. I see the ability to play like a minimized role. He can simply be a screener and a roller screen and pop for threes. He's going to be a great defensive player. It's just a matter of staying healthy, what heights he reaches as a shooter, a scorer off the dribble. That, that's where the question is, and that's where maybe you might favor a pure shooter like Jabari Smith or a shot creator like Jaden Ivey, or more of like a, 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 a scoring forward like Paolo Bancaro. So there's arguments for all of these guys, and that, that's why the top of this draft more than any, I think, in you know the last seven, eight years, it's, it's about fit and in terms of breaking the tiebreakers between these prospects that are all really close uh, in terms of talent level. I obviously like him a lot. I, I love his instincts. I love how engaged he is. I love yeah. that he can be off the ball and still impacting the game. You know, these are a lot of things where I just don't like high level prospects. I don't like lottery projected players where they disappear. I just, you know, and I don't, I don't know what my hit rate is on it, but it's a bad sign to me. It's a bad sign when I'm like, yeah, I know you're, you kind of physically check all these boxes and there's an idea that you can do a bunch of these different things, but Chet impacts the game. He impacts it in a bunch of different ways. I just, the physical part, he stayed healthy this year, you know, and he does get knocked around. He gets pushed off his spot. When you watch him box out with like guards sometimes they'll get into him and get the you know some senior guard from san francisco will like you know knock him on his ass <laughs> a little and you're like okay yeah it's gonna happen he's gonna get pushed around for a bunch of years but he's gonna fill out i don't know if you've heard me talk about the the weird kind of shoulder thing with him i i don't know i mean maybe it's just the way he runs or carries himself because it's not like he's awkward it's not like he doesn't have great hands and feet so you would think like there are bigs that maybe don't look great physically and then some of their movement matches it his movement is far more fluid than maybe just the way his physique is at this point so i don't know how you feel about that or what you've talked to with teams about it because i know what's coming up 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that for him maybe sometimes manifests with the shot creation. Uh, you know, in terms of his ability to move his body, the flexibility he has to get low as a handler and all that. Um, is that is that what you mean? Like sometimes when you see it, or do you mean the kind of like the? I, I think it was on Bill's pod you mentioned, kind of like hunched over a little bit, running in the open yeah, floor. Yeah, hunched, hunched. Yeah, I, but I don't. I don't know if it means it. I don't know if it's maybe just an aesthetic thing or what. I, you know, I'm not. I bring it up to bring it up, but I, it doesn't mean like, oh, he's never going to play well because of that. So I don't know. I mean, I think I think there's a role for all of these weird bodied players in the NBA today. Uh, like with Holmgren, it's the type of thing where if you're asking him to defend a true interior big, a, a Joel Embiid and Nikola Jokic, nobody can defend them. But also with Chet, most times you can probably use him in like that Robert Williams type of role where he's off ball. You know, he's defending a wing or a forward, a limited shooter, and he's the guy helping on the inside rather than the guy who's the primary. So I think with the body concerns for Chet, there's certain matchups that that I'd worry about him. Uh, but I think early in his career, you're going to see teams use him more like a, in an off-ball role, kind of like how the Cavs used Evan Mobley next to Jared Allen. And, and in that sense, I, I don't I don't worry too much about Chet um, on the defensive end of the floor. It's just about, like, is he just a... Is he just a guy who's screening and rolling on offense and pick and popping and spotting up? Or is he somebody that can be an offensive hub for you, a creator around the elbows and wings? I think that's my, my main thought is how much offensive value will he provide in terms of self-creation versus a guy like Jabari Smith, who granted there's some concerns there too, but he, he has more upside as a ball handler than Chet or Jaden Ivey, who is just a creator, and Bancaro, who is a creator. And those are the most valuable players in the NBA. But also, Chet falls into like that that Draymond Green bucket of player, different type of body, but somebody who impacts winning in ways beyond uh, scoring. He just does it in a weird type of way. So I'm glad you brought that up because it does feel, it's not identical, but it's somewhat similar to the Cade and Mobley conversation we had a year ago. Because every time I would ask a team, and I'd share this with everybody, I, you know, I forget if the number was, it was close to 10 teams where I'd go, if you have the number one pick, like how much of a conversation is it between Cade and Mobley? And they're like, there's no conversation. And that's everybody loving Mobley. And Mobley may be winning rookie of the year, although Cade's putting a real big push on this. But as you've watched Mobley, and I love him, okay? The guy doesn't even make mistakes. But I also noticed when Cleveland needs a bucket, it's a little bit more complicated for Mobley to take the game over. Whereas Cade, every night he's closing these games out and he's making the right decisions. He's figured a bunch of stuff out here the last couple of months. Um, you know, shocker, a guy that was hurt in preseason wasn't an all-star immediately, right? Out of the <laughs> gate. So you go, okay, well, wait, I need a high ball screen guy that can control everything. Chet's not that guy. Mm -mm. And I'm not like penciling in that Jabari and Boncaro are absolutely that guy. Ivy's probably the one that profiles the most out of any of the guys that we're talking about at the top. So if the league told us a year ago, you take Cade over a Mobley who physically, you know, again, he's not, he's not, Chet, he's more advanced physically, but I don't think he had the wide range of things that Chet has at least flashed at times. Uh, that I think can be a similar conversation, even though we're talking about different profiles of players. Well, doesn't this also touch on the fit aspect? Because for for Cleveland, they already have their their creators. They have their Darius Garland. Granted, Colin Sexton got hurt. They had him too. So they're drafting more of a, a finisher, a guy who enhances the rest of the roster and Mobley. Uh, to complement those guys. And with Houston, they have Jalen Green. And they they envision him becoming one of their, you know, top two creators on the team. So, you know, the place that needs, you know, some fill 
is room protection, energy, toughness. You know, the guy who's screening for that creator being the finisher. Um, so in that sense, it, like I'm not sure what's more important, the creating or the finishing. Um, you want a guy who can do both, obviously. Uh, but but I'm but I'm not sure. You know, you can expect that from any of them early on in their careers. Uh, they can grow into that. Like Jabari Smith, if he's pouring every resource he has into becoming the best ball handler he can be, he can get better at that. If Chet Holmgren does the same, maybe he continues improving over the years to come. But I think that's why Chet ultimately is number one for most people, at least that I've talked to recently, because he has that baseline of of what he can be for a team in a winning atmosphere. But then he could potentially grow into something greater than that. All right, so you have Jabari going two to the Pistons, which makes all the sense in the world from a basketball fit. That would be if it were Houston one, Detroit two, and it went Chet one. I'd imagine the front office is like, cool, the Chet decision is out of our hands, <laughs> unless you're absolutely in love with Chet, which I think some teams are really high on him because mm-hmm. of what he potentially could be. Uh, Jabari with Cade. What do you see there as opposed to Jabari with two guards that don't know how good Kate uh, <laughs> Jabari with two guards that, that wanted him to go 15? Oh, my God. Yeah, th- those, <laughs> those offering guards. I said to Titus and Tate uh, on my pod this week, I, at times I thought it was sabotage. <laughs> like, what are they doing? Just not passing them Saboteur. the ball. <laughs> it's, it's horrible, Ryan. I was screaming at the TV, give Jabari the ball. And, and then, with, then, I mean, with Chad, with uh, Kate Cunningham, it's not a concern. With Cade, his facility, he wants to be a playmaker. And then he, then he becomes the scorer when he needs to be. That's why Cade's had so many great fourth quarters this year for Detroit. But he's a passer first. And pairing him with Jabari Smith, who's a shooter first, I don't know. Like I, I get excited about the idea of seeing those two guys grow together with some of the other pieces they have on that team. Um, but but like the thing with Cade is, though, can't you fit him with any of these guys? Like If you're the Pistons, if you're one or you're four, if it's Ivy or it's Bancaro or or it's Holmgren or even if you slide out out of that, Kate, the benefit of Cade Cunningham is you could fit anybody with that guy. All right, so you got him going two, uh, and you got Jaden Ivy Purdue going to the Orlando Magic mm. three. So what's happening here? Give me your give me your Ivy breakdown and then transition that into where Bancaro is right now because you have him going fourth to OKC. So with the magic at, at the third pick right here in the mock, um, you know the decisions the the decision would be between probably Bencaro and Ivy. Ivy being a, a sophomore dynamic shot creator, and I think pairing him with Jalen Suggs in a backcourt it's beneficial in two ways. With Suggs, I mean, you want it, you think he's going to be good. He's only a rookie, but he did struggle. What if he's not good? Uh, Ivy gives you some insurance there in the shot creation department, but also if Suggs is good. Then you got two big, strong guards who can defend and play hard, and and Ivy being more of the downhill creator, Suggs be, maybe being that secondary guy who's doing a lot of the dirty work. Like that would be a great pairing over Bancaro, who you have a lot of guys in that front court. Um, I like Bancaro in a situation where he's able to be with some more established creators, and that's why the Thunder fit for Bancaro to me is like one of the the, the perfect fits in the top of the draft because with OKC, you've got Gildress Alexander, you've got Josh Giddy, and with those guys and their shot creation, Ben Carroll, all he's got to worry about is scoring and to stay on the floor, play hard on defense. I think ben, with Ben Carroll, maybe more than anybody at the top of the draft, it's going to be about which situation does he fall into and, and how does that environment uh, influence some of the, the bad habits that we saw at Duke this year? Because I don't know, Ryan, like I, I heard about before the season with Ben Carroll, 
I had him number one on my board. And and right now I have him fourth. And I think I think with him, I heard so much positive feedback about his work ethic, the character, the desire to be great before the season. And then during the season, it's like, oh, he's checked out and he's not trying at Duke. And it, it, like I, I'm kind of puzzled by, by what's going on there. Yeah, I I don't know if it's fair or not. You know, we'll we'll see what happens with the rest of the tournament. We'll see what happens mm-hmm. with some of the stuff. But I mean, that first weekend when he comes on the scene and everybody's watching that game at the same time, it's like, wait, somebody thinks they're going to go ahead of this guy. And that was yeah. kind of my thing all season long. As you watch Chet in his best moments, you go, okay, nobody's going against him. And then I ended up being like Saturday morning Jabari was my thing. Like I go, I just want to watch Jabari as much as I possibly can. And I still like Paolo. I do. I mm-hmm. do. I think it's a really weird team at Duke. Uh, it's. I made the point that I think there's five guys that would be leading scores on major, major programs elsewhere. That's how how impressive the talent is. I think A.J. Griffin coming along kind of made He's it nice. weirder for Powell because A.J. was kind of supposed to be the guy. But I mean, look, I mean, Moore is impressive at times and Williams is center. I kind of like, God, look at all these guys. So even though it was this stacked team, I still like Paolo, and I'd have to be—I'd have to be told by more team. It just—you get the sense if there's a temperature thing, it does feel like the league has cooled on him a little bit. But it might be that the other guys are more impressed. I don't know. Like, what's your—I know you can't tell us everything. I'm not going to share everything. It just feels like if there were hot and cold, you know, associations with these players, it—it it just feels like the momentum with him has cooled. And I don't know if that's specifically related to him, the player. Or if it's the situation, or if it's just how damn impressive the other guys have been too. Yeah, I, th- I think it's largely the other guys have just been so impressive. Uh, like the leap Jaden Ivy took as a sophomore, Jabari Smith. You know, I don't, I don't think people were necessarily expecting him to be the number one pick. He's getting you know lottery mid mid lottery hype, but not number one. And then Ben Caro is just disappointing. It's just disappointing defensively. There were so many times over the course of the season, the effort and the focus was just not there for Duke. And I'm not sure how much of that is a culture thing, how much of that is a coaching thing um, or what. But ultimately, we've we've kind of seen this before sometimes, though, like with college prospects who aren't locking in, aren't putting in effort. Then in the NBA, they become tremendous defensive players. I mean, I like another Duke guy, I think about Jason Tatum. One of the concerns about Tatum coming out of Duke was, well, he's got the length and he's got the size and he shows flashes on defense. But it's it, the consistency's not there and all that. With Ben Caro, it's similar. In the NBA, does Ben Caro show, oh, this is why the six foot ten mobile 250-pound guy can actually defend three, four positions? In an NBA atmosphere, maybe it turns into that for him. Um, but that that's that's the conversations I'm having with people about Ben Caro on defense right now is culture fit, situation, coaching. Uh, the the rest of that roster. What's the best fit for him to get the most out of him? Because he's fourth on my mock, third on my board right now. In my heart, like I said before the season, he was number one on my board. And I, I guess I'm kind of looking for reasons to move him back up. Um, is where I'm kind of at with Ben Carroll because there's so much offensive talent, there's so much shot creation. If that shot can go from like thirty percent from three. 70% from the free throw line and he can become a far more efficient perimeter scorer. That's going to open up everything for him on offense. Cause his, his shot creation, doesn't he remind you of, you know, old Blake Griffin a little bit, you know, late, late Clippers, Blake, 
the Detroit Blake Griffin with that one great all-star season he had. He reminds me a little bit of that kind of more groundbound Blake Griffin. There's so much there. I, I want to I want to look at his shot chart stuff because sometimes when I'd watch him, I felt like he got a little perimeter happy. But then I, uh, you know, as soon as I started wondering that, you know, writing down like, hey, check shot chart, check trends on some of the stuff. And then I'd be like, yeah, but when he takes you down there and decides mm-hmm. to bring it to the hoop, he nobody's stopping that. You know, that little kind of 180 pivot that he would do, but then he'd kind of finish in different ways around the rim too. So like, it wasn't just that he was overpowering everybody, which I hate with some, you know, some of these AAU guys that like, oh, you just dribbled through everybody because you were fucking huge. Awesome. And then you'd never figure out a way to adapt to it. Like he already had counters with different things. So, um, I don't know. Um, all right. You have AJ going to the Kings. Yep. AJ Griffin going to the Kings, um, score six, six, uh, didn't really get an opportunity uh, with Duke this year to show off every single, I think, layer of his offense with what he can do. Because like you said, there's five guys that might have been leading scorers on different teams across the country if they weren't all on Duke. Um, but with A.J. Griffin, I, it, would, it wouldn't shock me if one bit, if in the draft, pre-draft, he's a lot of, had a lot of injuries. If medical means that his stock could dip a little bit, it wouldn't shock me if pre-draft, because of his amount of talent, he's able to show off more. And we start talking about him as a little bit more than like seven, eight or five, five six, seven, more like four five in the top five uh, with Griffin because the, the offensive talent's there. Uh, now it starts to get a little interesting because there's a second group that's been kind of ignored by I would say, you know, the non number one conversation, you know what I mean? This is where I start to do my work and you're watching this group. So you're like, somebody's going to hit like one or two of these players in this Keegan Murray, Iowa group, um, the, the shade and sharp thing we need to get to, to who never yeah. played at Kentucky, Matherin, Arizona, Sohan, Johnny Davis, like in that group, you're like some one or two of those guys are going to hit, I think based on personality alone. So if, I wasn't going to go like one through 14 or one through 30 here. Let's talk about Matherin from Arizona because he's somebody that was 129th overall in his class as a recruit ranking, right? So this is not one of the top recruits coming into Arizona. He's got an interesting background. He's from Montreal. He's one of the rare hockey basketball players you don't have a ton of. Um, <laughs> he was 18, six, two and a half assists this season. He's 39% from three for his career. He makes his free throws. And what I'm going to start working on, I'm going to dig into this and I'll share it with you later. I want to look at like prospects. You don't have to be a top five prospect in your position in rivals or twenty four seven. It's let me look at the lottery picks that went from freshmen to much bigger impact sophomores. So we see an actual trend of development of improvement. Where somebody who's in a system is like, look how much better this guy got from his freshman to sophomore year. Not just because he got better because he stuck around longer, but we see that, wait, does he have the wiring that shows us a work ethic as opposed to just a dominant high school player that was kind of whatever, but still checks all these boxes physically and profile, but didn't kill it as a freshman. And now we're taking the lottery. Is there something to be said about somebody that makes a massive jump as a freshman? He was still decent as a freshman in Arizona. But now as a sophomore, and on top of that, the way once you watch him and the way he carries himself, he carries himself like he's the baddest motherfucker on the planet. And that's where I look at like him or Dern at Memphis, where I think Dern disappears. And he's he's a different kind of player. He's not going to be running your offense or all these different things. So that's a sophomore thing I need to work on in itself. But Matherin appears to be somebody like who 
there's a lot of great parts about this. And I think him being a sophomore makes him maybe more appealing, even though you have him, what, going ninth, I think? Yeah, right now in the uh, the mock draft, have him ninth to the Knicks, which would be fun. Imagine him in Madison Square Garden. <laughs> That's how he carries it. Like, when I was like, wait, he's from Montreal? Like, I expected to know, you know, I expected it to be one of the major cities somewhere and then it was like oh yeah that's right this is that kid from canada so go ahead yeah with <laughs> with mathurin i think you're right ryan like guys who i don't know it's on my mind because last night we see jordan Poole crush it for the warriors when you see a guy college level nba level you love to see improvement over the course of a season last year with jordan Poole with the warriors we see him get better over the course of the year he's killing it averaging nearly 20 at the end of the year it carries over to the season. He's getting better again in the second half of the season. With Matherin, it's similar. He totally changes his game, but also his role changed too because last year with Arizona, they have Sean Miller at head coach. Matherin's a freshman. Now they have Tommy Lloyd as a head coach. And Matherin goes from being more of an off-ball guy to one of the main guys on the ball. And that's partially player development. And it's partially just more, more role and opportunity too. And, and he continues to crush. He continues to get better. And now doing it in massive games as well. That's exactly what you want to see, whether it's uh, a young player in the NBA or whether it's a college prospect. Because now if you're an NBA team, you can look at Matherin and say, okay, well, what if we get this again? What does this look like in two, three years with some more levels of improvement uh, as he continues to improve as a defender, as he continues to improve his positioning, as he continues to cut down on turnovers? What does all this good stuff turn into when you remove some of the fat? And, And I think with Matherin, that's why he's personally rising slightly on my board um, because the more you see, the more you hear about him and that work. um, He's the type of guy that you want to bet on. I mean, you don't you want you want to bet on workers, guys who prove that they can get better and prove they can excel in different types of roles. Um, And and Matherin's doing that. So uh, I have him ninth in the mock, but would not shock me one bit if by the time we're doing this in June, he's higher. I haven't done enough work on it. So I'm just going to go ahead and ask because I've kind of been like glimpsing in as I was doing the Matherin stuff. Am I an idiot for liking his teammate, Terry? Terry's cool. Uh, I, I like Terry, but not as much as Coloco. Uh, are you a Coloco guy? Well, I mean, he was, he put on an absolute show. Did uh, he? It's so fun. Against TCU. I, I, you know what though, is I'm, like Sheboy is a good example of this. Like watching Kentucky lose to St. Peter's, there's a bunch of reasons why, but one of the biggest things was like, so wait a minute, you're supposed to have a post player fix you guys and carry you offensively? in 2022 like who does that anymore and that's what kentucky was relegated to because ty ty hasn't been the same and the other guard is is a tough watch uh wheeler for kentucky yeah and um i'm like okay so you guys are going to try to win this game by going into the post the whole time so coloco i wouldn't call him that i think he's is he would you say he's a little bit more clint capella ish yeah i think so i I do with coloco i think there's some untapped perimeter skill too though that he hasn't been able to show at zona granted he's 22 years old when he's going to be a rookie yeah okay so why would you have math and i'm not saying you're wrong but like why would you have math behind an older keegan murray i mean i think i i kind of know the answer but I, i'll just tee it up why do you have him behind Duran? why do you have math behind uh i'm trying to take there's on my board here. or the mock um oh yeah you know what i don't know because i i guess on the mock part of this uh that kind of some fit a little bit, you know, like the Blazers at seven. You have Dame, you have Simons. Maybe you're not drafting Matherin. The the Pacers at six. You you have Brogdon there. You just traded for Halliburton. Uh, I can see the argument for going for a guard there. 
Um, TJ Warren. Yeah, you got TJ Warren blocking Keegan Murray's minutes right. now, you know? Right. So, I mean, they have a lot of guys on that team um, where it's maybe not about need. It's just about BPA. Uh, I, I don't know. Like, I'm, now that I bring up BPA, I'm curious. Like, when you talk to teams, Ryan, what kind of feedback do you get in terms of the the taking the best player available versus factoring in need? Well, I've always said that the NFL, like, you can tell. By the way, um, Warren's, Warren's up, right? So I guess he would be out of the way. I just want to double check that. Uh, I think you make mistakes big time when you draft for need in basketball. NFL, they do it all the time. I mean, the need-driven picks, even in the first round, it's incredible how often it's need-driven. Um, basketball, I don't... I think I think that's where you make big, big mistakes. I mean, unless it's like, you know, Chris Paul in year three, you know, if Derek Rose were available, then maybe you go, okay, we, we can't, we actually can't do this. You know, I think there are rare extremes. There's no absolutes. But, uh, you know, if I'm looking at, if I'm looking at like, I don't know, I'll just go back to your mock here. If um, I'm the Pacers and I'm thinking like, all right, Keegan Murray's 22. And Matherin's two years younger than him, I guess. You know, we can get on the months here. I just think you make a huge mistake when you go need for basketball because it's about it's kind of like back to the Chet thing. Um, it's it's other teams that will make mistakes where they go, well, we knew we were going to be taking on way more risk because it's about trying to get somebody that breaks through and can carry your basketball team. So maybe we'll take a flyer on a guy that's way lower floor because we think it's a chance of being more impactful than going, oh, cool, we drafted somebody who's going to be a rotation guy you know, maybe five through nine on our roster at some point. And yeah, he's going to pay, play in the league, you know, six, eight years and get paid on the second contract and all this kind of stuff. But I mean, does that really make us better? Did we really put ourselves in a position to improve mm. ourselves? And so I don't know. I'm not a big need guy unless it's really, really extreme where two guys are completely in each other's way. Totally. You? Yeah. I think the way the way it was framed to me a couple of years ago that made sense is need, drafting for a need might be about breaking a tiebreaker if there's you know, a handful of prospects where it's so close between them, you're factoring in need to say, oh, well, what's our philosophy? How, what are our, our potential opportunities in the near future with transactions? What does our coach want? What's that system look like? You know, in terms of need, I think, I think all of that does kind of loop into how you end up ranking these players and who you consider the actual best player with who you are and what your team is and what you already have. But ultimately, I don't think you're going to draft a, a player who is clearly a worse prospect talent wise than someone who is clearly a better prospect uh talent wise it, unless it's so close that's when you factor a need versus like you said with the nfl it, it, teams do do that based specifically off of need that doesn't happen much in the nba but i think need does matter and does factor into how you end up ranking these guys which is why it's so tough it's so tough to to rank like a, with a general board because for some teams chet won't be number one for others, he will be. He's not a, a no-brainer guy. So to review, he has Chet 1 to Houston, Jabari 2 to Detroit, Jaden Ivey 3 to Orlando, 4 is Paolo to OKC, AJ Griffin number 5 to Sacramento, 6 would be Keegan Murray to the Pacers, Jalen Duran 7 out of Memphis to Portland, um, and then we mentioned Matherin 9 to the Knicks. So I skipped over somebody here who's become the mystery man out of Kentucky, who's also sort of out of Canada, and that's Shadon Sharp. 
If you watch any of his AAU stuff, you get why. I don't know. I've seen him rank number three going into this class. I've seen him rank number one. Other places have billed him. On his Wikipedia page, it says that he was number one by ESPN, 24-7, and Rivals. Um, But then there's other times I've seen him ranked as number three guy. He never played. Didn't play for Kentucky. I watched a Cal pressure the other day where he was like, if he's going to go in the top three, I'll tell him to go. But they're hinting that he's going to come back to play at Kentucky. He is an incredibly impressive 6'5 perimeter guy with a ton of game, aggressive as hell. Uh, there's a lot to really like about him from the AAU part of this. Some teams love him, but we haven't seen him play basketball now for a long time. I have a hard time believing, I don't know what your intel is, that he's not going to end up going in the draft here because we're talking about at least a top 10 pick. But what do you have on him? My impression is he'll go yeah. to the draft. Uh, we don't know that for certain yet, but my impression is he'll be in the 2022 draft. And and with him, I wonder if he's the type of guy who, when teams see him up close with workouts, that's where his stock is going to be really truly determined. Because right now, all we're going off of is intel based off what we've heard or some people have seen from out of Kentucky uh, and also from everything that happened before college. Uh, playing AAU, playing in high school, and the improvement that he... We just talked about improvement with with Matherin and the guys like Jordan Poole with Shaden Sharp. He goes from an unranked prospect to 6'6", go-to scoring type who has every move in the book from the perimeter, who can defend, who's a willing passer. He... He checks all these boxes of the type of player above the rim. You know, he's a great athlete. He can finish with touch. He just checks all these boxes of somebody who can be your leading guy of a franchise because of his scoring ability and his ability to do everything else. It's just, he's kind of the mystery box <laughs> because we, we didn't see him compared to all of these other guys. And we've, we, we've seen this story play out before. Jaden Hardy goes to the G League. Hardy more of that scoring type as well, who shows, you know, sprinkles of some other stuff. He plays in the G League, struggles. Some people don't even have him ranked in the lottery anymore when he was a top five guy entering, you know, this last season. So it could have all fallen apart for Sharp had he played at Kentucky. Um, but it also could have really established him as the clear, you know, number one, number two, number three guy like he was out of high school. All right. How confident are you are in this group between Sohan 10 to Portland, Johnny Davis 11 to the Wizards, uh, Easton out of LSU, 12th to the Grizzlies, or out of Kansas, Abaji 13th to Atlanta, and then Walker Kessler, the big guy there from Auburn, transfer to UNC going 14 to the Hornets. It's way early here. Um, how confident do you feel about that group still being in that lottery, flirting with lottery area? I'm not the biggest Johnny Davis fan. Wow. He's, he's cool. He's a cool prospect, but I, I prefer the, all the other guys that you mentioned. Sohan, Eason, Abaji. Those guys are just tough, play hard, multi-positional defenders. I, I, think, I think this year's draft class is filled with guys like that. Um, who can just contribute to winning and, and play their role and play it at a high level with with Davis. I mean, like there's a lot to like there too. Don't get me wrong. He also brings that on defensively too. It's just gone. What is it? Who, Wait, I'm sorry. I'm going to just give me more on why you're not as big on him. It's just the perimeter sh- jump shot uh, yeah. uh, with guards who can't ha- who haven't proven they can shoot with any consistency. I have some concerns there. Um, with what he could turn into as a shooter, but maybe over the course of time, he gets better like, like other guys do. It's not like he's a piss poor free throw shooter. He shoots in the high 70s. So there's a chance he turns into something. He brings it as a rebounder. He brings it on the boards. He brings it on defense. He's he's the type of guy who he even post up 
You know, he could be be used in different positions on offense. So there's a lot to like. Um, but like I think there's less certainty with what you want him to be. Whereas with Sohan, with Eason, with Abaji, uh, there's a lot of confidence with who they are. And with Walker Kessler, um, the other guy you mentioned, I have no confidence. <laughs> he played the worst game of his life for Auburn. <laughs> and that last game, was, I don't think he played a single good possession. Uh, but he was great all season. So how much do we factor in that he played like this abhorrent, ugly game and his potential last college appearance versus, hey, he was actually really good all year and an important rim protector for this team that people were scared to drive to the rim to face him because he's so long, so big, and so skilled around the rim. So I don't know. It's tough to balance that out. Um, but also Walker Kessler, just from a, uh, he just kind of bores me compared to some of these other prospects. <laughs> we're talking about whether I, I'm in or out on him. Yeah, it looks like all the G League guys took a bit of a hit, at least on this mock. Is there one G League guy you like, like significantly more than others? I mean, is it Daniels? I, I love Jaden Hardy. I, okay. I still love Jaden Hardy, despite some of his struggles, because I, I think he got better. He got better over the course of the G League season. As a score, his scoring efficiency improved, his feel improved, decision making improved, even his defense got a little bit better. Um, Hardy, Hardy, uh, I forget. I think he's with Chris Haynes this week. He called himself the best prospect in the draft, and you like that confidence. But also, if I'm drafting Hardy in the lottery where I have him ranked, um, I have him 25 on the mock draft to the Grizzlies. If you're drafting him high, I'd want to find out, does this guy have the understanding that you're not going to get utilized like the number one guy in the draft and that your role is going to be more insignificant early in your career and you're going to have to be patient and grow? Um, like the personality aspects is is where a lot of those guys, uh, their fate is going to be determined. Yeah, look, I get it. Being confident. Hassan Whiteside yeah. told Chad Ford that he should have gone number one. And I was like, <laughs> okay. <All right." laughs> he said he was like a mix of KG, but like more physical. It was some some amazing comp, you know. KG, but more physical? Yeah, something like that. Like, <laughs> Like, what's that card? Like, what's your profile? Like, he's, oh, he's a better shooting Kobe. Like, oh, okay. Marsh, the Marshawn Brooks Kobe one was one of the, the oh, all yeah. time. But to be fair, I think it was it was Grover who was training Marshawn Brooks, and then he was talking with Chad Ford about it. At the time. I just remember it. They weren't saying he was going to be Kobe. They said there were movements in the way he set himself up in his triple threat, his jab step, and some of his up and, you know, some of the stuff that he was doing that they were like, it looks like Kobe. And very quickly we realized that yes, that it may look like it, but Marshawn Brooks. <laughs> shout out. Shout out to the Friars. Did, didn't didn't Marshawn Brooks average like sixty points in China at one point? Maybe not average, but scored. All right, let's let's do it on the fly. <laughs> Marshawn Brooks, China. I could see that guy getting major shots up in China. He averaged uh 35 points in 2016, 36 points in 2017, 37 points in 2018. What a beast. Beast. Oh, I always oh love Marshawn Brooks. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> he was playing for the Southern Tigers last year. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's got his, his international per game in a couple hundred games here is 28. 28 a game. <laughs> <laughs> 41% from three. Makes his free throws, too. Oh, great Look player. at this. This guy's like Westbrook without the assist and rebounds. <laughs> he's only <laughs> And he makes his threes. So maybe he's, he's better. Maybe hey, he's better. Only, yeah. only 33 years old, too. Can't give That's up right. on Marshawn Brooks in the NBA. That's former right. former uh, Celtics draft pick. 
Uh, granted, I think technically, he went to the Nets. yeah, technically right. he went to the Nets. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. I I think that draft I wanted Brooks on the Celtics was disappointed by the trade. A lot of people were, but I always felt like this yeah. about Danny. He was very good on the Providence prospects. You know, oh, like yeah. if, if Ainge didn't like Chris Dunn, that's pretty much all you needed to yeah. know. Maybe, maybe that was a sign. Yeah, right. Uh, anyway, all right. That is Kevin O'Connor. You can read his mock draft on The Ringer and make sure you check out uh, The Mismatch with Ian Verno. Um, and he also has his video series called The Void, where you can see the intense video breakdown work that he does. Thanks as always, man. Appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Looking for a better way to watch live TV? Stream your favorite sports and shows on over 95 live channels with Hulu Plus Live TV. Get access to Hulu's entire streaming library, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, all in one plan. Start your free trial of Hulu Plus Live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com. Mountain climber Alex Honnold. So it's been a maybe, I guess, a couple years now since it feels like the world, everybody in the world knows who you are. How's your life changed since the movie? Uh, depends. Not not that much. Obviously, I'm a little higher profile, but, uh, but I'm still doing all the same things. Actually, probably the biggest change has been uh, just a couple weeks ago. Uh, my wife and I just had a daughter, so that feels like a change. Though it has nothing to do with the movie. Well, that is a pretty big change. And when I told a few friends that I was having you on, they were like, oh, did you see you just had a kid, which I think kind of plays into your story and everything. So what's that been like? Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I think our daughter is pretty mellow, but it still feels like a lot of effort to, to raise a raise an infant, you know? And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's an ongoing process for, for the next very long time. When my group first started having kids, a couple guys said something funny that I, I'll never forget. They were like, I almost feel like I need to write a letter to my parents and sort of apologize. <laughs> yeah, I, I will say it all seems harder than, than we sort of expected. I'm like, wow, I can't believe everybody does this. So, you know what I also really liked is it's, yeah, I just, <laughs> this is funny for me because I feel like in a way you're just so functional in the movie, which I think is probably a reflection of your decision making. You're just a pragmatist. You're like, okay, yes, this is how I see the world. And this is kind of, so it could feel cold at times, um, which I think is what makes you great at what you do. Did you get any sense of that? Or are you like, well, Hey, I'm pretty used to me. I've been hanging out with myself for a long time now. Well, I prefer to think of it as directness, you know, clarity, call it clarity. I'm very clear in my thinking and my decision making. But um, but yeah, I mean, I've certainly heard a lot of what you just said over the years, you know, from from various uh, girlfriends and things or other friends. But um, but yeah, no, I, I think it all makes sense. When I watched you in The Alpinist on on the the uh, the Mark Andre doc, it was funny because five minutes in because this is all that happens. And as I was prepping for this, I'm like, well, how do I ask him about all the stuff that he's just sick of talking about? Because, you know, everybody has this fascination, like no ropes. And I've seen you in some of the interviews. You're like, yeah, no ropes. You got it. Like what, what's, and you tell the director, I think in the Netflix doc, you're like, that's just a dumb question. Like, why are you even asking this? And as you've understood it, cause it's your world. Do you think more people have started to kind of understand because of the success of the movie, at least if they disagree, but they understand your motivations better? I definitely think that more people understand climbing in a broad sense than they did 10 years ago. And not just because of the film Free Solo, but because of the films like The Alpinist or Don Wall or Valley Uprising. I mean, basically, they're, 
there have been several fairly successful mainstream climbing documentaries, or even uh, like 14 Peaks this last year is another Netflix documentary, uh, more about high altitude mountaineering in, in the Himalaya. But, um, you know, I, I do think that the success of all these different documentaries give people a better glimpse of what climbing is and, and you know, what people are doing. I mean, it's better than people getting their understanding of climbing from the film Cliffhanger, you know, which is where we were at 15 or 20 years ago. It's like if people watch Sylvester Stallone and Cliffhanger and they're like, that's climbing, I want to try it. They're like, ah, you know, that's a bit of a stretch. Can anyone be that jacked and be a good climber? Uh, maybe not quite as jacked as Sylvester Stallone, but uh, but there are a few very muscular climbers. It, it's rare, but but it happens. I guess jacked so, isn't the right word. I should say bulky. Because I'd imagine yeah. like 230 pounds at a certain point, your body might be a little bit more tired. Yeah, I mean, climbing is all about strength to weight ratio. So, I mean, if you weigh that much, you have to be really strong. So, you know, it's it's tough. When you're kind of going on the journey through through the movie and like, it's this thing you have to do, right? It's very clear in the storytelling that LCAP is something that you have to do. How did that weigh on you up until the moment you actually decide, okay, today's the day? I don't know. I mean, depends on what scale you mean. I've been thinking about it for almost 10 years. So, you know, it'd been, I don't know if weighing on me is the right thing. I mean, in some ways you could say guiding or whatever else. I mean, yeah, it, it, sometimes that kind of thing does feel like a bit of a burden or a weight. You're like, oh, I have to do this thing. But on the other hand, you know, it gave me a lot of, a lot of guidance in life, a lot of inspiration, a lot of motivation for like almost a decade. So, you know, that's, that's worth something. But, um, but yeah, it did very much feel like, Maybe a calling is the right term. It's like, this is something that I have to do in my life. And maybe not have to, but it's something that, that I really want to do and I feel, you know, well-suited to to take on. And it's like, you just, sometimes you just feel obligated to take on the challenges that you think you can. Yeah, because I don't know if the movie, like sometimes I was reading um, some excerpts of a Navy SEAL book, right? And he was he was giving these lessons about how, it's the David Goggins book. And, and he was like, you know, I was almost drowning and then I just decided to, talk myself out of drowning <laughs> and then it was like and use that in your everyday life if you have a sales job or something and you just go okay but th there's like such a massive disconnect like i understand <laughs> that i'm supposed to like attack the day a little bit more but like this is you're at a completely different level so i think free solo could be inspirational but i guess there's just so many of us 99 percent of us in life will not have a moment like you had where you conquer something unimaginable that nobody else has ever done. And I wonder, I wonder how that process, like what, what's, I, I, I feel like I can get a sense. You just be like, Hey, tomorrow's just the next day. But was there that moment where you realized like, I'm the only person that's ever done this? No, because I mean, it's sort of a complicated answer, but I mean, part of the, the challenge of free selling is obviously the psychological side. Like you don't want to build it up too much in your head because the, the physical side of climbing El Cap, you know, I mean, I climbed El Cap tons and tons of times with the rope, but the, the challenge is when you take the rope away and then there's like the greater psychological, you know, side to it. And for me, at least with my process for free selling El Cap, an important part was to not let the psychological side grow too big. And so I was sort of intentionally not talking it up is like, this will be the craziest climb ever done. This will be the, you know, like by the time, like I need it to just be another day. I mean, you just said that like, Oh, that it's, that it's not another day, but I actually wanted it to feel like, you know, this is Tuesday. Like I wanted to do all my preparation and get to the point where it was like, you know, I can do this tomorrow. I can do this next week, but either way, this is just like a normal day of climbing. And so, so part of my, my sort of planning for El Cap is that I actually had 
you know, like a normal climbing expedition planned for later in the month, like, and then some other stuff later in the year, like basically I had other goals lined up throughout the year. So it was like, I was just going to Yosemite for my spring season, like I normally would. And, you know, this was a climb that I was hoping to do while I was there, but it was part of my bigger year, you know, like there were other things going on after. And, you know, and that helped me keep it from growing too big psychologically. It wasn't like, this is the end all climb of my life. This is like, this is what I do in the springtime before I go on my summer expedition, which is preparation for my winter expedition to Antarctica. You know, it was all sort of like part of the plan. Now, when you have the first, is it really a first attempt? You know, in the movie, it, it plays out this way where there's, there's an attempt and you're like, no, no, not today. What would have happened there? Yeah, I just wasn't really ready. I mean, I, I, I wanted to do it. I hoped to do it. And I just, I just couldn't basically. Um, but yeah, no, it's all, it's all very fairly portrayed in the film. I mean, I'd sprained my ankle maybe six weeks before and, you know, thought that it was going to end my season, but then I was able to, to sort of do some prep work. You know, I recovered fairly quickly and was like, oh, you know what? I think I can do it. But, but in the fall like that, the season was kind of ending, like winter is coming. It's going to start storming. It's getting too cold. The days are getting too short. It all, you know, it was like winding down and I was like, oh, I really want to do this now that I put a lot of effort into it. And at that point, I'd put a lot of effort into the top part, which is where the technically the harder climbing is, but I hadn't put that much effort into the bottom. And then I gave up on the bottom because I just wasn't really ready for it. So as it turns out, I came back in the spring, I managed to put in more prep on both halves and felt much better. So the day it happens, like when you're heading to the first lab, what, like, did you just know, like, there was everything so finely tuned, at least mentally, physically that you just like, okay, this is it. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty close. I mean, you know, whenever you're doing something that you've never done before, there's always the, a little bit of hesitation, like, oh, this is pretty exciting. This is, this is something. So, you know, I mean, I, I was confident. I knew it was the day I was ready. I was psyched. But at the same time, you're still like, oh, geez, like, you know, I mean, it's still a pretty daunting looking piece of rock. <laughs> no, no, I remember uh, the, the day that I did it. I actually parked over, um, like normally you park kind of directly in front of El Cap and you hike straight up to the wall. And the day that I did it, I parked sort of at the east end of El Cap at a different parking lot and then hiked kind of the length of the wall uh, because I didn't want to, basically I didn't want to run into anybody in the parking lot and have to talk to anyone because you see other climbers all the time and they're like, oh, what are you doing today? Like, oh yeah, we're, you know, and it's like, I just didn't want any interaction. So I kind of parked at like the side lot and then, but it meant that I had to walk the whole length of El Cap, which is not that much further, but it means that you're walking underneath the wall for, you know, 15, 20 minutes. And the whole time we're like, that's a big wall. You know, it really gives you, gives you a lot of time to reflect on the scale. Yeah, I know it is. It is a big wall. Uh, I talked to somebody who watched the movie on a flight and she said she had to take a Xanax at some point. <laughs> she was like, you know, it's just too much, which we'll definitely get to in the virtual reality stuff that you have coming out. All right. So <laughs> that's the day. And uh, this may sound stupid, but I imagine the soloing part of it probably makes you better. Like, does it? Does it ramp it up where you just feel like every single movement, every single maneuver, everything is just that more in tune because you just know, right? Yeah, it can. I mean, it, like sometimes you can climb at your best and it, like you're saying, everything feels crisp and precise and you're like 100% focused on every movement. It definitely can be that way. But it also can be the opposite where you're like in your own head and you're like, oh, my God, if I slip, I die. And you're all gripped and you're like holding on too tightly and like moving uh, like too jerkily, you know, like kicking to things and all kind of like spastic because you're like holding on too tightly. Um, so, I mean, basically, it can be climbing at its best if you're relaxed and climbing well. But, you know, it really depends on on what you bring to it. Was there ever a moment, you know, I don't know you know, if there was 
how how the filming of it all worked, even though they, the doc actually kind of is almost doing a documentary of itself. And then I watched that other outside piece of it the other day where you guys yeah. were hanging out and, and your crew, it was, it's amazing, you know, really how, how locked in everybody was and how much they cared. But there's, there's a story through it. And even in some of the outside pieces that I saw of just you being like, this might be easier if we just don't film it. Like how much, did you ever come close to telling your friends, like maybe this just isn't the way to do it because it, it certainly feels like a lot of people in your position, it impacts it to what degree none of us would understand, but there, there feels like there's a, there's a concept of like, look, this isn't necessarily the best condition to do this as dangerous as it is by having you guys be filming this movie and all these pieces in the way. Totally. So yeah, it definitely makes it a little bit more complex to have to think about other people like that all the time. And and it's slightly, uh, you know, I found it slightly more difficult psychologically to sort of perform in front of others. Um, on the other hand, and this is something that I feel like wasn't really addressed by any of the making of or, or the film itself or anything. I mean, I was working on the film for a reason, you know, I mean, I, I agreed to because it was helping me achieve the thing that I wanted to do. I mean, the thing, I mean, I guess they kind of show, but the, uh, the camera guys were all like helping me carry ropes to the summit and helping me rappel in on things. Like there's a tremendous amount of physical effort that goes into rehearsing a wall like that. Like, um, the, the cameraman, Mikey Schaefer, he's the guy like, uh, that can't look through the telescope at the end. If, if you remember, like kind he's of on the ground, right? Yeah. He's yeah. shooting the long shot. So, um, he had just torn his ACL on a ski injury, which is why he was shooting the long shot. But through the two years of effort, he was mostly the guy repelling the wall with me and doing all the filming like on the face. And so Mikey and I repelled the face together, I don't know, like 20 times. And it's a lot easier to repel a wall with somebody else uh, just because you have two people to help pull ropes and like tie things and, you know, basically to do the work required to get up and down the wall. Like basically it's a lot, it's a lot of effort to carry all your stuff up there and then repel all the way back down. I'm sure you can imagine. And so, you know, even though there were definitely moments where it felt like more of a challenge to, to balance their needs and, and just like the logistical hassle of having all these people around. On the other hand, I mean, I knew that they were helping me do the thing that I wanted to do. You know, like it, it was definitely better for me to have them there than, than to do it totally alone. Yeah, I, I could ask it this way. But like, was there ever a holy shit moment in the less than four hours it took you? And you would say, yeah, the entire four hours. But uh, no, 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 the opposite, the opposite. It was it was mostly very calm and great. There were a few moments, um, particularly what? down low on the route where I had, you know, I was like, this is this is pretty scary. You know, I was like, oh, this is like, I remember specifically, and this isn't even in the film because it was like a section that wasn't filmed, you know, on a 3000 foot route, they only filmed, you know, a couple hundred feet here and there because it's just hard to cover everything. But one of the sections that wasn't filmed um, was kind of the first spot on the route that I started getting pumped, like, because the route is very low angle. So you're mostly on your feet for the first thousand feet. And then as the wall starts to kick back and get steeper and more overhanging, it means you're more on your arms a little bit. And so when I got to the first section where I was actually like using my arms, I started to, you know, get fatigued in my arms, which is totally normal. And I was getting pumped in like the appropriate way, like the way you would when you warm up for a day of climbing or something where you're like, oh, I'm getting like, I'm using my muscles and I'm feeling them burn, but like in a nice way, not like, not like in a terrible way. But I just remember this moment of like, oh my God, I'm getting pumped. And being like, this is kind of scary. And then I was like, wait, I'm supposed to be getting pumped. This is totally normal. This is like, you know, and then it, and then it was fine. But, um, but there were definitely moments like that where you're like, oh my God. <laughs> What happened with the camper? Was there a guy that was who was in the unicorn outfit? That must have, I don't know if that helped you. you. You flew right past him, so it wasn't like it was necessarily in the way. But what was that like? No, now I'm actually starting to forget the details. But um, I think that I maybe passed three parties that morning. Um, There's one in the movie. The 
What he's about? in a full blown. There's one in the movie where he's in a full blown pink unicorn outfit. Yeah, which, though actually, if you if you watch closely, you notice that when I go by, they're still on the portalage. They're still like in their yeah. bed, and then I can go by, and then they show a long shot of him standing in the unicorn thing. So I actually never saw them get out of bed wearing their weird costume. So you know, when I went by, it was just kind of like trying not to jostle their bed and like you know, good morning, but they're still like sleeping basically, and I slip by. And then later they get out and you're like, that's weird. He's wearing a unicorn costume. But it's not that unusual for people to have... Basically, it takes all kinds of characters to climb all caps. So you see people with pirate flags and people with weird costumes and, you know, all kinds of stuff on the wall. If you go back to the beginning of it, too, and kind of, you know, look, it's very revealing on, on you and your life, your personality. You're like, hey, I live in a live in a van. Um, I'm eating dinner at Walmart at, for 88 cents. Um, you just, you know, you're very functional it, like i have nothing to compare nothing to compare this to um but i used to paint and you know i'd be up pretty high in a ladder certainly not el cap but uh and i had a ladder so well i would hate it because all i would do was think it wasn't the painting it wasn't the heights it wasn't the wind it wasn't any it was just that all i'm doing is thinking the entire time because the painting once you get decent at it, it's sort of mindless and then i started thinking about you and i thought like maybe with your personality and you can't, it's not like you'd be mindless when you're technically climbing this kind of challenging mountain. But do you think your personality is the perfect makeup for your sport? Well, I don't know about that, but I will say that um, that I totally hear you on the having time to think. And, and that is one of the things I love about climbing that I love about soloing. Because like with all the hiking to and from mountains and all the, and all the easy soloing is mindless enough that you can just kind of think like you're saying. And, and I really like that. And so on something like El Cap, probably a third of it actually is pretty mindless. I mean, like maybe a third of the, of the face is relatively easy climbing, like easy enough grade that, that my mind can wander and I can think about whatever, you know, and then a third of it's like more serious. And then a third of it's kind of hardcore where you have to be like 100% like this is, this is intense. But, um, no, I, I like the mindlessness. I like the, the thinking, the, the time to yourself to just sort of wonder about the world. You know, it's like, that's, that's a big part of being outdoors to me for me. I felt a little guilty uh, during the, as a guy that isn't married, um, when Sonny's basically like, <laughs> I took your side in one of the arguments. I was not on your side when you were shopping for a house and you weren't helping with the tape measure. I took Sonny's side on that one because I, I did think that was a bad look. But I remember watching the movie and, and being kind of frustrated on your behalf. You're like, hey, this is pretty hard on its own. I don't need to be told like all the bad things. And, and you were kind of like, Hey, it was almost like you were a customer service. You're like, your, your position is noted and <laughs> I'm going to keep climbing. Um, I know it's a movie and, and clearly everything has worked out, but that was, I found that kind of tough because I think all of us that were invested in the movie were kind of on your side because we wanted to see you accomplish this great feat. And it felt a little bit like I know where she was coming from, but I don't know. I guess maybe you weren't even frustrated by it because you were so focused, but it was just kind of an odd dynamic, I think, because it was like, oh, he doesn't need this. Oh, I don't know. I mean, um, it's just like those types of conversations are such an integral part of a, a climbing relationship. It's like, you know, I mean, you're describing the conversation that's on film, but it's like we probably had variations of that conversation, you know, dozens of times. And it's not necessarily that's contentious or that's like a problem in the relationship. It's just that you know, you can't do dangerous things without talking to your partners about it. And, and not just romantic partner, like with Sonny, you know, my, my not wife, but like all my climbing partners, like every time you're doing something in the big mountains, you're doing alpinism, like, you know, 
you're constantly talking about risk and, and people's individual, uh, you know, willingness to, to take risks or not. And so, I don't know, it, it, not that stressed if somebody needs to have some conversations about it. Yeah, no, you're right. And there's, there's a lot that we don't see. Um, and obviously it all worked out. So I, <laughs> I mean, also an, an interesting aside here is that when, uh, basically Sonia and I started dating right at the beginning of the filming of free solo. So through the whole process of, of the filming and then of the actual climb, we'd been dating for like a year and a half or maybe two years by the time I did it, maybe a year and a half. It's crazy. It feels so fast. You know, now we've been together for six or something and married for one or married for two. I don't know. You know what I mean? It all starts to feel a lot. And so that's like kind of early in a relationship where there's still a lot more to, to hash out. And, you know, now having been together a lot longer, it's like we don't really need to have those types of conversations as much because we sort of covered a lot of that terrain. But I think that the film just happened to be at the beginning. No, it's, it's that's smart to kind of reassess the timeline for us. But I, I guess I feel like no matter what those conversations are, you can say that they're important, they matter and all these things. Like it wasn't really going to change anything for you, at least on the climbing side, correct? Yeah, yeah, that, that's fair. I mean, I was I was sort of on a path. And, you know, if any of those conversations had gotten too contentious in some way, you know, I probably would have thrown away a good relationship to like finish the the climb that I, that I wanted. You know. So then how do you assess it all now with with a family? Oh, I don't know. I haven't really had to yet. We'll, uh, we'll see. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if, if it all changes a little bit, but, um, but at the same time, I wouldn't be that surprised if it doesn't, I, I don't know. I mean, cause a lot of those, those, those sort of conversations, those assessments of risk have to do with like how much you want to do a specific plan, like how much it means to you to pursue specific goals. And, you know, right now I don't have any of those specific goals like that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working on all kinds of different climbing things, but they're, um, but they're safe right now. You know, they're more like personal projects of different kinds and, you know, we'll just, we'll just see. What's the best part about being famous now since this, what's the coolest story that, that you've had? Oh, well, coolest story. I mean, the best part is, is obviously just being able to make a living relatively easily. You know, it's like getting like corporate speaking offers and things like that and being able to support the family and still go climb full time. And, um, you know, I mean, basically like that's, that's for sure the best part. Um, like people often ask, you know, when I'm, and there's like a line of people like take photos or something, they're like, Oh, do you hate this? And I'm like, no, I'd much rather do this than like be laying brick or something, you know, because like technically I don't have any education. I don't have any other real prospects. Like, you know, like I'd much rather be taking photos of people than like having to work a real job. Like to me, that's a, that's a total no brainer. I'm like, this is, this is way better than actually working. Um, yeah because when you know it's not like if you're a baseball player we could just google how much you're making and everything i always thought that was really funny that the one kid when you spoke to the high school was like how much money do you have you know i thought it was like a very normal question and you answered it in a perfect way you're like oh comparable with a dentist yeah though that was before the film came out <laughs> like <now> yes <laughs> yeah that's that's what i was i was able to kind of put that one together all right and and part of that too is that uh alex honnold the soloist vr documentary um which basically if if free solo wasn't intense enough for you we have a chance to really enter this world so you can can you tell us about now the tech and what you've put into this uh as this is launched this month yeah so the the vr experience is just basically like watching a film like free solo but in vr so it's just um so like in 360 video i mean you can watch the climbing but you can also turn around and look at the mountains like look at the scenery you know look up look down I mean, the 360 audio, I think, 
I mean, there are a lot of things that make it feel a lot more intense. You're just there. You're on the side of the cliff watching. But, um, but like, the audio is one of them. Did you get to watch the, uh, the actual experience? Have you gotten to see it? No. It's, it's totally mind-blowing. So there's, there's a scene in it when I'm, when I'm climbing, I'm sawing this face, and I pull off a little rock, like a little rock breaks off, which is not, not that crazy, but I toss it down. And in 360, you like watch it for a second, you track it going downward, and then you kind of lose it because it's this tiny little stone. And then you like look back at the climbing, and then six seconds later, you hear a rock hit the ground, and you're like, whoa, and you look down again, you're like, geez. And then, you know, it gives you a sense of scale in a way that, that normal film just doesn't. And so you just, it's through Oculus TV, and then I guess, like as far as all the different ways that somebody could go ahead and consume it, they're, they're interested in. And throwing yeah, so, this thing so you on. need you need the Oculus headset, and then it's free in the Oculus App Store or whatever. It's like free on the Oculus TV app or something. So basically, if you own an Oculus, which is the, the goggles, mm-hmm. then then the the content is free. That's crazy. It's part of it's part of uh, Meta's way to sort of drive consumers to Oculus, I think. Which you know, for better or for worse, like I don't know if I sort of support the whole you know metaverse and all that kind of stuff like you know and i don't know how i feel about vr generally and whatever else but i will say that when you watch this on vr it'll blow your mind it's like totally insane so you know from from a personal perspective i was like you know i'm doing a project that i can show my family i mean it it really gives a better sense of what's going on you know while i'm sewing than than like anything else i've ever done you know, I mean, and actually, and this is a good example. I mean, so we've just been talking about free solo of the film and you've asked a lot of questions about sort of like the risk and the danger and like the, the mitigating, all that kind of stuff. The thing that I love about the VR experience is that it gives a much better glimpse of the positive side of free soloing because you're able to turn around and look at the scenery nonstop. And you're like, these are the most beautiful places on earth. This shot in the Dolomites and in, in the Alps, like basically some of the most beautiful mountains in Europe. And you know, you're like, here's some giant glaciers and like there are crazy mountains in the background. There's the sun rising like over this crazy glaciated ridge. It's like, you know, it gives you a much better sense of what it's like to be in these beautiful places doing this thing. And I don't know. I mean, I'd like to hope that when people watch it, they come away with it with a better sense of like the upside, you know, like what's the positive of going soloing in those places? Yeah, I think that's kind of what as we finish up here. I think that's always the sense of whether, you know, watching this, the openness, some of the other stuff in the interviews, there just seems to be this massive disconnect, you know, this, this disconnect of, of, you don't, you know, I, as I was prepping for this, I was like, how do I talk about the thing that I have to talk about for like half the interview, which is kind of the reason why everybody freaks out about these movies and freaks out about, you know, you guys as a, as a, as a community of, of solo climbers. But I don't know if that disconnect will ever be understood. People are going to listen to this right now and be like, it doesn't make any fucking sense. And then when you're talking to me, you're saying like, yeah, but you guys don't, don't get it. I don't know if that'll ever be bridged. I, you know, I, I don't, it might be an impossible thing. Yeah. There are some things that, that probably can't really be bridged without, without actual shared experience. I do think that the VR experience does a better job of bridging that than, than anything else I can imagine. Like, I think that when you, when you watch so long in VR, you're just, I mean, it is way more intense. So it's probably like scarier for some people. But it, on the other hand, if you think the climate is too intense, you can literally just look at the scenery and enjoy this, you know, some of the most beautiful landscapes on earth, which is a big part of the appeal of soloing in those places to begin with is like to have these cool experiences in these incredible places. And so, you know, I mean, I, I think, I, I hope that the VR experience does a better job of bridging that gap. What did you do the rest of the day after you soloed El Cap? Well, we did, you know, an interview, which you see in the film. I went down, I hangboarded, I did a little training session because I'd been on this like every other day program and I was trying to stick to it because, and then, um, and then I don't know, I think we just kind of hung out, you know, like, oh, sweet. it's like, 
because that, that gets you to like mid-afternoon and then i mean i got up at like 4 or 3 30 so i probably went to bed pretty early the next day i think we went to a sunday brunch and had a had a pretty epic like feast of a morning i hadn't eaten sugar in months and so i was like brunch and having like you know i don't know like french toast with nutella and stuff <laughs> well congrats man on on everything and and the new addition to the family and you know we you were uh you're something else, man. It's just it's just kind of awesome to watch your story and, and get to know you through these different versions of, uh, of of access. So looking forward to this as well, the Oculus thing. So good luck and uh, thanks again. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for chatting. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like Ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari. 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Okay, lifeadviceRR at gmail.com. Podcast listeners, girlfriends, and wives, favorite segment. <laughs> uh... I've listened to you for years and I hate you, but I do like life advice. So finally, it's something I can listen to with Jeff. All right. Uh, six, four, two, fifteen. Swimmer's body in the off season. Um, also a massive SVP and Priscilla fan. Thanks, man. Okay. Uh, his name in this email is Kevin. <laughs> okay, Kev. I own a rental property. Uh, I had new tenants move in this past November. They said they needed a storage locker. So I offered up mine from the building. But when I gave them the locker number, I accidentally gave the wrong one. Okay, for those that were, I was a little confused when I first got this one from Kyle. Apartments, storage basement, you know, fenced-in area, different fenced-in deals. You get assigned one. Uh, this guy had one because he owns the unit, but then gave them the wrong locker number, uh, which isn't just a straight-up locker. You know, I, I'm imagining this sort of like a fenced-in thing where your stuff, you can see it, but it's safe because it's your own lock. Fast forward to this past weekend, the tenants want to retrieve an item from it and notice the lock on the unit wasn't theirs and all of the belongings were gone. 
I contacted the property management company and they advised that a sign was put on the unit two months ago saying they had the wrong locker and if their contents weren't retrieved, this would be discarded. They would be discarded. Clearly, the tenants didn't see the sign and neither did I. And now the contents have been thrown out, donated. I spoke with the tenants and they don't have renter's insurance. They estimate the value of the contents that were near $5,000. Although from an insurance perspective, I'm not liable from this. Uh, I'm not liable for this, but from a nice guy perspective, I'd like to help out as much as I can. If you were in my shoes, what would you do? Any advice would be greatly appreciated. Well, uh, a couple, I mean, obviously it sucks that if you're the owner of the unit, that there couldn't be somebody from the management property management department to be like, Hey, just a heads up to everybody. We're going to clean out this storage unit and throw all the shit away or donate it. And what also means is that property manager guy is going to grab himself a pair of skis. Um, and that part of it's nasty. Like as somebody who had a storage unit once where it was going to be up for auction because look, I was 26 and I was broke and I wasn't in the greatest place and the storage facility was uh, on the mainland. So I actually had to like take a boat over to deal with it for the day. Uh, it's, it's brutal. Like that part of it's brutal where you're like, you're going to just give all my shit away because I'm behind a couple months and clearly the payment for the storage isn't even close. But if you ran a storage unit, you're like, yeah, okay, we'll just have everybody be late. Every, you know, no problem. Just nobody pay their bill and have no influx of, of cash and we'll just keep your shit here, you know? So uh, it's kind of like, it's on a much less serious note, but it's kind of like when you're at some of those gyms and they have the temporary lockers and they decide to like go through them once every couple months and then you show up. There was one in West Hartford when I was back there where you would roll in and they would do kind of the purging of the lockers, of the temporary lockers, the non-permanent ones that came with membership, but just, hey, you bring your locker. I think everybody understands it. Shut the fuck up. Uh, and then you go in and there'd be like seriously 40 to 50 little yellow tabs basically warning everybody if you're keeping this as a permanent locker, like understand the content. And then the other part of it is you're like, there's just enough people that are selfish that they go, oh, well, I'll get away with it even though I won't. And then I'll get a heads up and then I'll be able to do my thing. And they're like, hey, this is why there's never any empty lockers ever because all of these people keep doing this stuff, which, you know, this is what people do. People can get real selfish about it. This is a little bit more serious because we're talking about people in their living situation. So um, it would have been nice if they could have given you a heads up. But remember, people are motivated um, in ways that benefit themselves more often than not, unfortunately. Uh, I think it's great, first of all, that you feel bad enough that you're like, hey, what can you do? Do you trust them on the 5,000? That's going to be a you call. None of us know what the interaction is like. If you wanted to be a little bit of a hardo about it, because it's clear you don't want to just cover it, write a check for 5,000, they could be rounding up. People do that as well. You could say something like, hey, well, can you give me an itemized thing? You know, I'm going to try to see if my insurance can cover it, which could be bullshit because your insurance probably wouldn't cover it. But it might be a way to kind of get a real sense of if they're fucking with you or not on the 5,000. Because even though it sucks for them, you screwed up. You gave them the wrong number. I still don't know why I had to lead to this. But again, we already covered all that. Uh, you could say, I need to just for my own, I want to help out here. But you need to give me kind of an itemized thing. To ask for receipts is probably a bullshit move because they're not going to be keeping receipts. But if it were furniture or something that was ordered from somewhere, the order history would be um, in their account. I mean, that stuff goes back. I can look at furniture that I ordered 10 years ago. Okay. So it's, it's all kind of there. So that way you kind of cover yourself from being taken advantage of, but the fact that you want to help and step up here, um, is important. 
And I think it's the right call because you did make a mistake. But I also don't think that you should just go into this blindly and set yourself up to be completely taken advantage of. So I would say, can you give me an itemized list? Is there any way you have receipts on the bigger items? That way I can have my insurance look at it and maybe help this out. But I, I'm sorry, but I can't just cut you a check for $5,000 until I do a little bit more work on it. And if they're diligent and they have this stuff and you actually totally believe them, then it's kind of up to you. So I think your, your heart's in the right place here, but don't go into it so so determined to help that you also get fucked over on this because they're mad at you. Kyle, you ever, you ever pull one of these? Pull one of these? No, but like in situations when like I'm in the wrong, like sometimes I'll be like, all right, all right, got it, got it. Um, what can we do about this? I mean, and, and obviously it's, it's not like with what jumps into mind with me was like, I, I was involved in like a head on crash on like Christmas day. And I like, these two two guys like going to work. I just kind of gave them all the money in my pocket, and it was it was a whole thing. I was a dummy, but it was like immediately wait, I knew I was wrong. Wait, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. We I'm just more. saying immediately I knew I was wrong, and I was just like, oh shit, what can I do? I know you're probably gonna like gouge my insurance for this. I'm sorry. I know I ruined your day, um, and uh, I just kind of gave them all the money in my pocket. Fun story. I actually ended up technically fleeing the scene because the cops were taking forever to talk to me. So, but, but that's not even what this is about. I'm just saying when you know you're in the wrong and your it is gut now. reaction, when you're, <laughs> but when you know you're in the wrong and the gut reaction is to like, all right, what can I do here? But you're right that it's like, it's not just like, oh, I crashed into your car. They're, they're saying we have $5,000 worth of stuff. And yeah, I think, I think it's right to want to help. And I think you'd be wrong to not end up giving anything. I think, I don't know, especially I think renters are usually like, I don't know, just especially if they need like to store stuff with, I they, they just probably don't have as many. It's probably not like, a, oh shit, I hate that that happened. Like they're probably actually like really suffering from that. So yeah, it's good that you want to help. And I think honestly, I wouldn't say anything other than what you said, which is just like, try to see if, if you can get a little more um, verification from what the stuff is. And um, yeah, it, you, like if you say you're going to go to your insurance, it's probably not going to happen. I feel like insurance wouldn't even do that if your shit got stolen or whatever, um, but let alone somebody else's. But um, yeah, I think it's worth just like at least asking for that and under the guise of I'm going to talk to my insurance or whatever. So I think that's that's good. Hey, so wait, when you handed all your cash, how much was it to the head on collision? Uh, it was probably I just picked up my check uh, from the restaurant Oof. from the melting pot. So um, but I didn't cash it. So I didn't have that. So I actually what I mean to say is probably pretty low. I think I probably had like 100 bucks. And was that it or did they follow up with you later on? Um, they followed up with the insurance. It, it was bad. Um, I was, yeah, I was in the, it was, it was Christmas day. I'd actually moved out, um, in my apartment. And my, when I moved out, my dad was like, you're not using my car. I was like, oh, wow. I actually thought I was going to be able to shit. Okay. So I was taking the bus up route nine to, to Modell's and melting pot. And he was like, you know what? It was Christmas Eve. He's like, as a present, I know you want to go get your check. You can take the car and go get your check. I was like, wow, really? So it's my first time driving the car in like seven months and I'm going and uh, I'm, I'm going to take the, I'm, I'm like at the, at the median there and I'm, I'm going to the left turn lane and I just, I'm driving to 06 Malibu, Chevy Malibu, not the greatest in the snow. And I just jammed on the brakes and uh, I went over the median head on crash into some two, two guys like were like going to work. Um, they were like laborers or something and just totally destroyed their car. My car actually wasn't, my dad's car wasn't totaled, but we sat in the gas station for a while. The cops took, cops were there for like 20 minutes talking to those guys. I'm standing in the gas station waiting for them to come to me. And they never, they like were taken forever. So I just called my buddy, picked me up. And apparently that was fleeing the scene. But uh, I gave him, I gave him all the cash in my pocket. I was like, I was like 18, 19. So I don't know. How mad was your dad? 
He was like, what the hell's wrong with you? You can't just leave. I was like, sorry, it was my first big crash, Dad. I don't really know. Didn't really know what to do. I saw the cops. I uh, yeah. said hello. I was, like, I'll be timeline, yeah. I was like, I'll be in here. <laughs> I was like, what are you guys doing? So like they talked to the other guys. The other guys left and they were just standing there. So yeah, I just left the car at the gas station. Um, strange. Yeah, I actually feel so bad after this story. I don't have a ton. I don't have a ton more. I don't know, Saruti. No, I just, I think, I think you got to, at least do your part. Like if you can, if you can pay the five grand or at least get close to it, I kind of think you have to do it. Like I remember, you know, we broke a buddy's futon. Like this isn't a situation where it's like a low end thing. Like we broke a futon off of Craigslist and ended up buying a new one for like 200 bucks. Like that's not that big of a deal. You do that because if you're, if you're, you know, in the wrong, then you should solve the problem. Um, five grand's a lot of money. I would say if you, if you have the means to at least get close to it, I would, I would try to help them out. Cause it really, at the end of the day, it's your fault. Like you're the reason that they don't have their shit. Yeah. It's not hard to draw a line from this fuck up to you it's really not it's not you don't have to do any gymnastics it literally is to get there to it is yeah. aligned to the fuck up and you that's it yeah i can't even imagine what the insurance would be on this because first of all the insurance is going to tell you like no a couple times yes. right and then if you were to say well i have homeowners so we should cover it but then they say okay well what exactly happened and then you go well it's a rental property now and they put their type i mean to me and negligence be, is the yeah, number one thing right i, I have I have, a, I have a strong belief with the insurance game that there might not be the most accommodating, you know, crew on the other phone, on the I've other never, line of the phone. So I've never gone through this before, but it, is there a way? Can you, I'm not trying to like scam insurers, but like, can you try to claim some of the stuff if as we yours? Were, you know, if like, we were going to try. But, but yeah, but if we're, I mean, <laughs> Kyle flood the scene, we're scamming insurance people, you know, we're just trying to help people. But like, is there a way that like, if there's a TV on there, so I don't know, can you, can you say, oh, this is actually my TV? I don't know. I'm just trying to throw shit out there for this guy to help him out because maybe the insurance would be more likely to cover the it. Problem, I, the problem is if the insurance company has anybody there with a brain, which they do, they're going to go, okay, well, the company threw your stuff out. Well, we want to talk to them. And then as soon yeah. as they say that, then the guy's going to go, Oh, we had this notice no. on the door for weeks. Yeah, we had the notice on the door. <laughs> yeah. We put it aside. Yeah. I, I, that's honestly, so fucking dumb though. The, notice. the mistake, like, right. The mistake sucks. But the thing that's tough to handle is that there's a there was a better way that this could have been handled. And whoever is in charge of the storage unit stuff, like that guy's got a sick end table right now. You just know, it, right? <laughs> yes. It wasn't it wasn't thrown yes. away. It wasn't a goodwill. He's like, oh, I got that from unit 32. He's like, fuckers. Yeah. He put it on the it. curb for one yeah. second so it could be free. And he was like, oh, but yeah, now the idea free. That, no like, takers. Hey, I threw your shit away. <laughs> well, I put a sign up. Yeah, good call. There was a sign. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, it, honestly, this kind of storage stuff, you don't check on it very often. You just don't. I, I know exactly no. what it is because yeah. I had one of one of my apartments and you go down there. And it would suck if somebody else's stuff is in there. I just think that there's a property it's, manager. There's people that you, like, when it's an apartment building that has this kind of facility, there should be enough people in the chain of command that then can be like, hey, can we help a tenant out here yeah. before we do this? And no. because like Knock said, on a door. Like, yeah. I, don't yeah. just throw it. Your first instinct should be to throw everything out. Yeah, like this tenants or this this management company's like we haven't had we don't have our email up yet. Sorry. You yeah. Know, we, all right. I don't know. Let's uh <laughs> let's get to this one. Speaking <laughs> of <email>. speaking of <laughs> living situation. Yeah, we're getting emails in 2023 to avoid this. All right, let's do another one here. Perhaps a more difficult subject for this crew, but uh it's called gay bachelor party. All right, here we go. Hey guys, stats, 35 years old, 5'9", 185, grew up playing sports, college athlete, can do 10 strict pull-ups on a good day, left out names and location. Dilemma. Oh, he's got bullet points here. This is good. Easy to read. I'm currently engaged to my, right, currently engaged to my boyfriend. We'll be getting married this fall. 
Um, my straight high school friends, including my brother, want to throw me a bachelor party as the token gay guy in the group. I'm not exactly jazzed about it. For context, I do love this group. We've kept in touch over the years, and my sexual orientation has never been an issue. I came out in my mid-20s, so this gesture is a positive one. Uh, but man, I've hated bachelor parties because they clearly aren't for me. This isn't to say I don't love uh, the shenanigans and the lasting memories of the group. It's all the extra stuff. Um, you guys know. Yeah, we get it, right? I've been to a few straight bachelor parties. I get it. Uh, and the gay jokes do fly when we all get together because it's their way of giving me shit. I'd argue it's low-hanging fruit, but that's neither here nor there. So what do I want for a whole weekend? I'm also afraid of the surprises that await me. I'm going to also offer up that reading that part of it about uh, the jokes, you know, that these are your friends. So you clearly, I don't know, you tolerate what you tolerate, uh, the 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 position against that would be, Hey, these aren't your friends if they're doing that kind of stuff. I don't know. I mean, it's just kind of like whenever I read some of the stuff that's, uh, more serious issues, I just want to make sure that we're not getting a, all the emails that would say like, Hey, he shouldn't even be friends with these guys because of the joke. So we're just at least addressing that part. But look, this is the guy emailing. These are his friends. This is his perspective on it. He's clearly doesn't feel comfortable about the bachelor party part of it. Um, which is more of the focus of the email. So moving on in the past, I've had to take one for the team, meaning just go with it. My French bachelor parties, but this is supposed to be for me. It does help that we're now all older and many guys have families, but it also means the thrill of one last banger weekend is coveted. So as much people say, this is about me. It's not exactly true. You are a hundred percent on point on that last point. Don't get me wrong. I do have an ideal bachelor party, but it's definitely not with this crew. And I wouldn't want them to go through what I did with their bachelor parties either a very good point so get to the point one sense i want to shut down any notions of a bachelor party because i'm too old to put up with the stuff in another sense i know i can be sensitive and might need to take a step back here a weekend with the guys doing the things i want to do does sound awesome is there a way to play this out with being the killjoy do i be upfront about it that seems to always make it worse in my opinion perhaps <laughs> i can be proactive in the plans for the weekend i don't know i need help guys the clock is ticking all right well look um this is your bachelor party, as you said, but it's it's rarely on point that as guys get older, like as much as the bachelor party thing can be pretty repetitive and you're like, all right, cool. And depending on if you're a strip club guy or you're not, I mean, a lot of times I think guys like the strip club part of it because it's just another place to drink. And a lot of those places are a little bit looser with when they want to close and all that kind of stuff. And depending on which part of your crew can make it through the night. Um, that becomes like the destination part of it and all, you know, whatever we, we understand, you just throw it in a pot and mix it. Right. <laughs> but if I got married and my best friend was planning my bachelor party and he said, well, the three things that we want to do is we want to, um, you know, we want to volunteer and then we're going to clean a beach and then we're going to do a really nice mellow dinner at Cracker Barrel at six o'clock. I'd be like, you know, I don't, I'm all for clean beaches, but I don't want to do it that weekend. You know, like that's not exactly what I want to do that weekend. And it is, it'd be nice if they kind of knew that they didn't want to do this, where it's this kind of put you in the uncomfortable situation. But I would go to whoever it is in the group that has the juice, that has the most respect of everybody else who likely is planning this stuff out, I would pull them aside and say, hey, look, you know what I'm about. You know what I'm not about. I don't want to turn this into some straight guy weekend where it's an escape for all you dudes while I'm constantly uncomfortable the entire fucking time. And if you do start doing that kind of stuff or that is the plan, then let me know that because you already having, as we like to say, pre-anxiety about this weekend, like that sucks, man. 
Like you shouldn't have to feel that. And you've had to feel it so many other times, um, whether it's, it's before you told your friends and certainly after, as you admit, that for you in your mid-30s, as you're approaching another chapter in your life to now have to face this about something that's supposed to be about you, that sucks. And if any of your friends actually care about you, and I would say specifically the one guy that can kind of um, get the group on the same page and make this about you and have it be things that you want to do and not be experiment rhino getting a lap dance because it's just not your deal. I mean, you could very simply say to one of those guys and be like, hey, would you be pumped if I took all of you guys to a gay bar? Like, do you guys want to do that? And if they said no, you'd be like, yeah, exactly. Like, maybe I don't want to do the shit that you guys want to do. And if we're all still friends at this point, which clearly you are, which I think is great. Um, I don't know why anybody with half a brain would resist that or push back. If some guys want to sidle off and, and get weird in their own way, let them do that. But I would say, let's go over the itinerary. Let's figure out the things that I do and don't want to do. And I don't know why anybody who calls themselves your friend and is close enough that they would be at your bachelor party weekend would push back on that. So um, I would I would try to be forceful and fix this one soon or just say, well, if that's the plan and it's about you guys and it isn't me, then I don't want to spend an entire weekend kind of bummed out and pissed off because you guys don't respect me enough and want to make it uncomfortable. And this isn't, you know, there's plenty of weekends and stuff where I've gone with guys. I'm like, all right, this is going to be. This is like, I remember one golf trip and it was like, oh, cool. Three straight 7 a.m. tee times because you guys want to play 36 holes. You're like, fucking A. But guess what? It's not your weekend. It's it's that person's weekend. It's what they want to do. Uh, and clearly golf tee time is not the same as this, but you get the point. So I actually don't think it's, it sucks that you feel this way, but I can't imagine anybody that cares about you as a friend wouldn't be like, yeah, you're right. Like, let's take care of our guy here. How does, I mean, like I said, never been to a wedding since I was 11, so definitely was never of age for a bachelor party. How does it work? Do you not decide, like, where you go, or do you still decide where you go, but you don't decide what you do? Do you, are you, like, kidnapped? Do they put, like, a hood on you? And, and like, how do you, how does this stuff work? Uh, kid, I, we've never kidnapped anybody at ours. No? Not like a I've fun way to get to. it started? No? No, there are guys that take it really seriously. Yes. Like, really seriously. And there's, like, a team captain that makes all the choices? Like, how does it work? I don't think there's like anybody has a C on their chest, but it'd be the best man is usually in charge of putting together all the okay. plans. So that's and a good depends, way to decide that. Got it. Right. It depends on the dynamic of your, your crew. The age thing is big because the first couple bachelor parties for our group, it's just right out of central casting, you know, Vegas, 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 you know, I mean, uh, loser town, you know, so like, does he decide where you're going. Is he like, we're going to new Orleans or are you like, Hey, I'd like to go here. And then he's like, all right, we'll figure it out. Like, and then where's the money come from? Like, does the guy, is the, is the bachelor not supposed to ever pay for anything? Is it he's like, not supposed to pay for no, anything. Not pay for anything. Okay. This is all new to me. I mean, I can tell you from like, from my scene, we had a couple Vegas ones. And then by the time I got married in my bachelor party, we were kind of all sort of Vegas out and partied out at that point. And I was just like, Hey, I want to be on a lake somewhere like water kind of alone. house ourselves. I invited Rosillo, didn't show up. Ouch. Hurt. Um, and it was awesome because we we're, were all kind of on the same page. But I was the one basically <laughs> dictating like whatever I wanted. I, I didn't say, hey, I want this house on this place or whatever. I was like, hey, like maybe somewhere in Maine on a lake secluded. Best man went out, found it, did it. And then we all kind of like got on the same page. And I think that's probably what you should do. Um, I will say, though, to this guy, there are like, weddings. 
aren't always about the people that are getting married. Like I learned that a lot of my wedding. Like my dad wanted a stag so bad and I had no interest in having a stag whatsoever, but I did it because my dad wanted to do it. I know this is a little bit of a different situation. Like you don't want to like just rage with some of these guys because you don't feel like you have a lot in common with them. But maybe there's a best of both worlds thing where you can go somewhere cool, but you don't have to do all the dumb events that they want to do that you don't have to. Like maybe you can split up into two parties because sometimes in bachelor parties, there are camps of people that want to get weird and other people that kind of want to just chill. So Maybe there's a best of both worlds situation where you can kind of find a middle ground there. Yeah, I, I think the best way to do it, go to the one guy that's kind of putting it together. You know, this is what I want to do. This is what I don't want to do. You guys are third in your 30s now. So I think that's to your advantage. And again, as we say this all out loud, it sucks that any of this sort of has to happen. But I think the best way of looking at it is the same rules apply. You just go, hey, I don't want to be, I don't want to be the guy that ends up at the strip club and it's like some sort of thing that's funny because, you know, I'm not, I'm not laughing. You know, right. Like, I'm, you know, and, if a guy wants you to in your friend group is like, no, no, this is this is what we're doing. Well, fuck that guy, you know. And if those guys want to, like Suri said, if they want to go and get weird on their own, then they are also allowed to do that. If they don't want to sleep, don't sleep. Yeah, you go can chill in the Keep hammock, going. dude. Fine. Who gives yeah. a fuck what they're doing? Go One qu final question about bachelor parties: How close to the wedding is it? So are people doing all this crazy shit like a Night week before, before the wedding? What? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, okay. Although, no, although down. I think maybe once I, or twice. I think it has happened. I, I saw something. I've seen guys have kind of like multiple things and, and I'm not, that's, that's very rare, very rare, but I'll, I don't, know, I don't know how much I should share here, but <laughs> I remember there was a night before situation for that a guy. That sounds crazy. And that's like the hangover. He was like, he was, he was basically taking it to the deadline of the vows is my point. And so guys he, were like, he was in rough what? shape. No, he was like, I'm not married yet. And we were like, what yeah, the fuck are you doing? And he's like, I'm not, I'm not, we were just like, I don't know if that's, was the that worst his mantra? Guy. He just kept saying it. It's, it's like, <laughs> everything's okay. I'm not married yet. <laughs> we were just like, dude, guys were like, what is going on? Like, he's getting married tomorrow. And we were just like, <sighs> over under six months on that one. Uh, I'm not going to add anything else to it. Okay. All right. I don't, I, cause they know under. what it's going to happen is that I'm going to have, I'm going to have college guys be texts asking, wait a minute. Which and it's it isn't any of those guys. It's a, it's a completely like unnamed moon satelliting. <laughs> you just satellites, not just this. It's this orbit that is so detached from the core of whatever. Like a comet. But, he comes in every like seventy some years. That's a, a comet is the best <laughs> best way to describe the guy because it was it was like wait I'd heard about this guy and he was kind of this legendary guy and then some dudes were like, do you do you know that he's in town? I was like, yeah, yeah. And then it just was guys, guys were sh guys that didn't know him were shook up the next day. <laughs> so outside of, outside of, <laughs> outside of the Haley's Comet bachelor party, like yeah. how, how is it? Cause it's, it's I was, when I was, it's months before. Really? Yeah. Wow. Cause mm -hmm. it was kind of a fucking pain in the ass getting myself together for this wedding that got canceled uh, in 2020. And then it's like to then also have to get yourself somewhere else uh, like a month or two before it's like, Weddings are expensive, huh? To go to even. Kyle, are you are you still not invited to a wedding as an adult? Is that you still over? Still over as an adult, correct? Got one Apparently, though, so the guy know. the guy whose wedding, yeah, I do have one coming up this summer. I'm so fucking excited, guys! You have no idea. <laughs> but the wedding, Kyle, wedding, yeah. Kyle, Kyle, wedding season. I can't Buddy, wait to see what it's I'm like. gonna get a I'm gonna get a suit. It's gonna be great. I might even get get a vest. I don't know. But um Who knows? Yeah, vests. That's huge right now. But that first one that I was supposed to go to, they already like kind of got married and there's like a kid now. So he's like, Yeah, we might have a ceremony, which I mean I'll go to the ceremony, but it's like 
you know, it'll be two years later by the time I, I get to go to this fake wedding. So I don't really want that to be my first one. So I think my first one's going to be in August and I'm ready to go. All right. Look, and if you guys want to invite Kyle to a wedding, lifeadvicerr at gmail.com, Southern California. But, you know, maybe we get a flight or a bachelor party. You know, yeah. Ba- yeah. I actually would rather Kyle go to a bachelor party. Than a group. <laughs> I get invited to stuff every now and then. And I'm like, I don't know you guys. I didn't go to Saruti's. So, you know, what else are you going to do? All right. That's life advice. Thanks to Kyle and Steve, as always. Uh, fun week. Really good week here for the podcast. Check out Kevin O'Connor's mock draft again on The Ringer. And please subscribe on your Spotify, Ryan Russell Pockets. Mm-hmm.